ask you to take your Bibles and turn with us, turn with me to our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are continuing in Isaiah 40 to 55, and this morning we come to Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. Last week we looked at chapter 46, and we talked about how Isaiah makes the point over and over again in that chapter that there is no one like our God. He alone is the one who carries us, unlike Baal and Nebo, the gods of Babylon, who need, some, who need their worshipers to carry them. God is the one who carries us. And we saw that He alone is the one who stands in heaven. The idols need their worshipers to stand them up. But God is the one who makes us to stand because he stands alone as the God of heaven. And he is the one who is the, he is the only one who brings righteousness, who brings salvation, because we don't have any ourselves. And in that chapter, we saw Isaiah taking shots at the false gods. They are false. They have no hope. They cannot answer you when you pray. They cannot save you when you cry. They're the ones who actually depend on you more than you depend upon them. And in chapter 47, he's going to go on now. Isaiah goes on now to talk about, in de, uh, in, at length and in detail, about how futile these false gods truly are. And the doom that lies ahead for the Babylonians. So, we're in chapter 47. I'm going to ask you to please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. I'm going to read just verses 10 and 11. This is God's holy word for us, His people. It says, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. We know that just by opening up your word and reading it, there is power in hearing the word. But now we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would help me to open up the text and to get out of the way and let you speak to your people, to me included. Speak to me, a needy sinner today, and use me to be the means by which you speak to all of us today. Show us the truth of your word and write it upon our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Okay, Jessica, would you mind uh, bringing me a bottle of water, please? Thanks. Thanks. 
she's very happy to be bringing me this bottle of water. <laughs> because she loves to be in front of everyone. Everybody watch Jessica. Hey, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you'll have an extra reward in heaven. No, don't, don't worry. <clears throat> All right. I recently saw a video from a news station about three teenagers. It was two boys and a girl. And I, I, I don't know when this was. It was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, I'm not sure where it was either. But in this video, these three teenagers, two boys and a girl, they were arrested and charged with multiple counts of assault and theft and one count of murder. Apparently, they had went on a little crime spree one night, mugged several people, and someone lost his life, a young man. Looked like he was maybe in his early 20s. And what they would do is one kid would approach a stranger on the street and ask for help. For example, they would ask, I'm sorry, do you have a phone charger? That was one thing they asked. And then as the person's like, confused or not, like, you don't just expect someone to come up and ask you for your phone charger, so you're like, I'm sorry, I don't have, you know, while you're dealing with that, the other one would slip in, and they would hold you up, and they would mug the person. And then a third would jump in in case it started getting a little confrontational, in case the guy give, uh, resists. And so they did this one night for several hours. They mugged several people, and then one young man fought back, and they ended up killing him. Uh, and it was amazing to watch the three different responses from the teenagers in court as the charges were read out against them. Three very different responses. One of the boys looked completely humiliated absolutely embarrassed. It, the, the shame was all over his face. The girl looked not ashamed. She looked absolutely shocked as the judge is reading out, you are being charged with this, this, and this. And the last one the judge mentioned was, and you're being charged with murder. And just the shock and amazement came over, her, came over her face, like, you cannot be serious. Is this, is this really happening to me? Is this real life? She never imagined she would end up in this position. You could just see it on her face. And the other boy, he didn't look humiliated, and he didn't look surprised. He just looked like he was just sort of soaking it all in, and he looked overwhelmed as he just took in the reality of having to face the full consequences for his actions. One night of horrendous behavior and terrible choices by these three teenagers, and now they have to answer for what they did. They have been caught, they've been charged, and now there's no way out of this. You have to go to trial, and you have to, 
you have to answer for what you've done. Well, in our passage this morning in Isaiah 47, the prophet takes us through this same progression of reactions as he prophesies the downfall of Babylon that eventually came at the hands of Cyrus and the Persians. The chapter is a continuation of chapter 46 as Isaiah proclaims the utter inability of the Babylonian gods, the false gods Baal and Nebo, to save them from the coming conquest. God promises to save His people, to make them stand, but the Babylonians and their gods will meet their doom. Isaiah 47 spells out that doom. As Babylon is forced to come to terms with their eventual downfall at the hands of the Lord, when He gives them over to the Persians, they experience these same three reactions as the teenagers in the video. Just like chapter 46, chapter 47 has three sections to it, and Babylon has a different reaction in each one of these sections. They go from humiliation to shock and to final acceptance of the inevitable. And the point that Isaiah is driving home for us in this chapter is that there is no escape from the clutches and the consequences of sin for those who reject the Lord. And the lesson that we must take to heart from the scriptures this morning is that since we cannot escape the consequences of sin on our own, we must flee to our only Redeemer. Now as we work through the passage section by section, we're going to see in the example of Babylon the inescapable consequences of sin. And there are three. Number one, there is no escaping sin's humiliation. Two, there's no escaping sin's deception. And third, there is no escaping sin's retribution. So we begin with the first section, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 47. No escaping from sin's humiliation. The city of Babylon is among the most renowned of all ancient cities. It's called in verse 1, a virgin daughter and daughter of the Chaldeans. Look at verse 1. It says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. What's going on here? Well, Babylon was the emperor's capital city. It was the pride and joy of kings and empires for centuries, beloved by the Babylonian people. It was a city of great beauty. It is described, as you saw in verse 1, as tender and delicate. And the imagery from verse 1 all the way to verse 9 describes Babylon as a beautiful woman, the queen or the lady of nations in the lap of luxury. And Isaiah prophesies that the city of Babylon, this luxurious queen of the empire, it will be, uh, she will be stripped of her throne, she will be stripped of her beautiful clothes, she will be stripped of her dignity, and turned into a complete disgrace. 
Instead of sitting upon a throne, she will sit in the dust. Instead of having servants, she will be subjected to servitude. She'll become a servant. Babylon will be utterly humiliated. Let's continue reading in verses 1 through 4. We read verse 1. Look at verse 2. The prophet says, Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name. He is the Holy One of Israel. You see that in verse 1 it says, Sit in the dust and sit on the ground. And here we have an echo of the curse upon the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here Babylon is being, she's the queen of the empire, the great capital city, and she's being cast down to sit in the dust and to crawl on the ground. And you can hear the echo there of God's curse upon the serpent. This is God's curse, His judgment falling upon Babylon as she falls from her great height. In verse 3, he says, Your disgrace shall be seen, right? Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. There sin's humiliation. Your disgrace. The great city of Babylon will be disgraced. There's the humiliation that comes from the fall into sin. And finally, verse 3 says that God says, I will spare no one. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. And there's the point of no escape. Because as verse 1 says, He's the Holy One of Israel. He's too holy to look upon sin. He will judge sin. He will confront sin. He's the one who takes vengeance upon wickedness. He's the one who sees to it that sin does not prevail. And so what happened to Babylon, they are going to be conquered by the Persians. They are, the city will be overtaken. It will fall. The empire will be lost. They will be disgraced, stripped bare, laid low, and there is no escape. God will see to it. That's what's coming upon Babylon, Isaiah says, to his original hearers. And just as God ensured that Babylon would not escape sin's humiliation... We, I'm sorry, He will see to it that our sins will humiliate us as well. As verse 4 says, He is the Holy One. I will take vengeance, verse 3. I will spare no one. And that is not just for Babylon. You and I are no exception to the rule. If you reject the Lord for a life of sin, you will likewise be humiliated as Babylon was. Babylon was knocked from her throne and cast to the ground to sit in the dust. And that's where sin will leave you as well, Christian. When we think all is well and we're on top of the world, 
Sin has a way of toppling us over until we hit rock bottom. And you wake up one day and you think about how it all went wrong and what did I do to get here and how did I end up here? How could I have fallen to where I am today? Sin will leave you broken after a humiliating defeat. Babylon was stripped naked and all of her royal garments were taken from her. Her nakedness was exposed for all to see and she was disgraced and she was deeply ashamed. And that's what sin will do to you as well. It will strip you of your dignity. It will snatch away your good reputation. The real you, the sinful self that you really are deep down on the inside will be exposed to the light if you forsake or reject the Lord. There is no keeping it undercover for, forever. It will be exposed. The day of judgment will expose it. Who has not known the deep shame? Who here can say, I've never known the deep shame that comes from having my sins exposed? When we've sinned, when we've done wrong, we don't want it to be publicized. We don't want to let it out. We don't want people to know. It's embarrassing to those, those thoughts I've had. I'd be terrified if you learned these thoughts or if you knew my emotions or you knew what I was contemplating doing or what I've done in the past that I don't tell anybody about. We have those things down inside. Things buried in the past. Things buried in our hearts. Things tucked away in a locked room in our minds that even we don't go into. Who has not known the shame that comes from the exposure of sinful words, deeds, thoughts, and choices? Sin eventually will come out and eventually it will leave you embarrassed and full of regret and shame. Finally, Babylon was subjected to lowly servitude. You saw that in verse Two, it says, take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs. In other words, you're not going to be wearing all those fancy, royal, expensive, Babylonian designer clothes anymore. Now you're going to put on the garments of servitude. Now you're going to be down there with the slave girl and you're going to be grinding at the millstone. You're not going to be the queen in the lap of luxury anymore. That was Babylon's punishment. Lowly servitude. And when we, whenever you reject the Lord, when you and I reject the Lord for a life of sin, sin will always be your master. You will not be sin's master. That's not how it works. We like to boast, don't we, about our own self-control and how in control we are and how with it we are and how superior and strong we are, how competent we are. We say things like, I can stop whenever I want to. This thing does not have control over me. I have control over it. And we are fooling ourselves. Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then Paul says in chapter 6, verse 20, 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were under the servitude of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness wasn't calling the shots. You were not serving righteousness. Righteousness was not commanding your life and your thoughts and your deeds. You were free. You were not under the control of righteousness. You were over here the willing, happy, content servant of sin. Bondage and servitude to sin is the inescapable consequence of rejecting the Lord. And it's the cause behind all the addictions and destructive habits and dispositions and patterns and lifestyles that grind people and whole communities into the ground. Sin is a hard and bitter master. And it will always leave the sinner humiliated in the end. There is no escaping sin's humiliation. In verse 1, Babylon is told twice to sit in dust and to sit on the ground. But in verse 5, they are told to sit in silence. Look at verse 5 as we move now to the second section. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonian people. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. So this second section begins with the banishment of Babylon into the darkness. Into the silent outer darkness. She is now cast out of her kingdom, rejected as the imperial queen. Again, we have an echo here of the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, who were given dominion over creation, are banished from the garden. What happened to Eve in Genesis 3? Do you remember? In the fall, what happened to Eve? Right? She gets deceived by the serpent. The serpent comes along and says, Did God really say that you would die if you eat the fruit? Well, yeah. But did he really mean it? And the serpent gets Eve to question the word of God, to doubt his truthfulness, to doubt the seriousness of what he said, to doubt his real intentions of following through with the consequences. He deceived, he tricked her. The serpent tricked Eve to sin against the Lord. And so it is with Babylon. She was unable to escape sin's deception. So she was cast out to wander in the darkness of her own deception. And the rest of this section from verse 6 to 11, it gives details about the origin and the extent of Babylon's deception. The origin... And the extent. First, the origin of sin's deception. Look at verse 6. It says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy on the aged. You showed them no mercy on the aged. You made your yoke exceedingly heavy. 
And then verse 7, you said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. So in verse 6, God explains that he was the one who handed Israel over to the Babylonians as a means of punishing Israel for their sins, according to the terms of the covenant with Moses. And yet the Babylonians treated Israel with exceeding cruelty as though they were invincible and as though they accomplished all their conquests all by themselves. And this, in verse 7, God tells them, you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. And the origin of sin's deception is right there. You and I fall for sin's deception when we refuse to keep the true and living God first and foremost in our minds. Paul says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There is the darkness of sin's deception. Sit in silence and go into darkness. Verse 5. The origin of sin's deception is when we believe the lies of the serpent. Has God really said? Did God really mean it? Can you really trust Him? How can you be sure? Maybe He's not being straight with you. And you believe the lie. And, we, and then we're banished into the darkness of deception. And I don't know if any of you have ever been deceived before. Like actually you, you really were convinced something was true. And then one day you woke up to the fact that wow, I, I really had that wrong. I was really deceived about that. Maybe it's about a person that you thought they were one person. And your relationship was one way. But turns out you were in deception. Or it could be a situation or whatever it is. I've been there before, and it really is like being just in darkness. I remember describing to my best friend when he was trying to help me through an issue years and years ago. And, and I remember after it was over, describing it like just be, like walking around through a thick fog. It was just like, it, just, it was just this mist over my eyes, and I just couldn't see clearly. I just, I really thought I knew what was going on and I really really didn't and everyone else could see it and everyone else tried to tell me but I just couldn't see it but then one day it was just like that mist just went away and it was like wow I really was foolish I really was I wow I really believed a complete lie wow I mean, deception is like that. It's like being out in the darkness where you think you know where you're going, but really your eyes just adjusted to how little light there is, and it doesn't seem as dark as it really is. But then when someone turns the lights on, you're like, wow, I really was in the dark. That's the origin of sin's deception when we take our eyes off the Lord and we believe a lie, and you don't know you're being deceived until you come out of it. Then you see it for what it was. That's the origin of sin's deception. Second, the extent of sin's deception. Sin deceives our very hearts. 
It tricks our minds and it deceives our hearts. It makes us, as verse 8 says, lovers of pleasures. See that in verse 8? Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures. Lover of pleasures. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 4 that unbelievers are swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Love of pleasure. Love, of, love for the things that are pleasing to the world is contrary to the love that we should have for God. Love of pleasure is contradictory to love for God. Paul describes these people as swollen with conceit in 2 Timothy 3. And this is sin's inescapable deception of our hearts, of our deepest affections. They are for this world and the things of this world, not for God. And our hearts are deceived. But it goes further than that. It's not just our affections, where our hearts are tricked into valuing other things more than God, loving things more than God. It goes further than that. The thoughts of our hearts are deceived as well. Not just the affections, but the very thoughts. Notice the rest of verse 8. It said, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am... And there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Wow. Babylon was sitting there saying of itself what God says of himself. I am. Me. Not you. Me. I am. I'm ultimate. I am in your place. And there is none besides me. I'm never going to have to sit as a widow. I'm never going to know the loss of children. Do you know who I am? You want to see me swagger and walk with the confidence? You don't want to see me go off. All this confidence that Babylon had in itself. Puffed up, swollen with conceit. Sin will convince you that you will never have to face the consequences of your sin. Because you're like God. You're untouchable. You're unstoppable. You're invincible. That stuff might happen to other people. Not going to happen to me. I'll be the exception. I'll get away with it. The damage and destruction of sin might happen to everybody else. But that's never happening to me. I will get away with it. Then look at verse 10. It gets even better. It says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. There's the deception. And you said in your heart a second time, I am and there is no one besides me. Guys, sin will convince you if you're not careful. Sin will convince you that God isn't really looking. He's not really keeping track of your sins. And even if he is, I'm under grace, right? The deceived think they are so very wise. So very intelligent. 
they know better than everyone, especially God. Sin leads us to trust in our own wisdom and our own knowledge to do what is right in our own eyes. And each time you and I sin, we do so knowing it's wrong and we do so knowing that God sees every single thing we do from the inmost desire to do it where sin starts the, at the low bottom of the heart. He sees it trickle up into thought he sees it trickle up into intention and then into action. And he sees the whole thing, the whole the seed of sin f- taking root and blossoming, growing, and finally coming out in our lives. We do it knowing he sees us. Proverbs 15.3 is a great verse and a terrifying verse at the same time. It says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the good and the evil. God sees us when we sin. And each time we sin, knowing He sees us and is watching, we have to somehow convince ourselves, maybe He's not really watching this time. Or maybe He won't mind this time. Or maybe I'll get away with it. I don't know what it is we tell ourselves. Maybe we just choose to ignore that He's there entirely. But sin is an atheistic action. It's a a revolt against God's all-seeing eye and His all-commanding will. Sin tricks us. Even when we have the very Word of God, that serpent still knows how to whisper to get us to take what God says you shall not take. Sin will make you seem so exalted in your own eyes. It creates an invincible arrogance that will not listen to the Word of God. And yet, what does the Word of God say? It assures us that our deception will come to an abrupt and devastating end. Look at verse 9. And in verse 8, Babylon says, I'm never going to be a widow. I'm never going to know the loss of children. In verse 9 says, These two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. And then skip to verse 11. But evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. That line in verse 9, come to you in a moment. Come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Verse 11. Here I'm thinking of that teenage girl in that video who was so shocked to hear the charges read. She just, like her mouth fell open. I'm being charged with what? And like her breathing got heavy. And you could just see the disbelief and terror that came upon her. Suddenly and in a moment when she realized what was really happening. The deceived are in for a rude awakening. Verse 11 says, evil shall 
come upon you. It cannot be escaped. And when it says evil shall come upon you, it's the same word in Hebrew as in chapter 45, two weeks ago, verse 7. Remember 45, 7? I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. And that word calamity is the same word in Hebrew as evil will come upon you. God is the one who creates this calamity that comes upon those who reject Him. God is the one who sees to it that there is no escape. In verse 11, it also says, You will not know how to charm away this evil. You will not be able to atone for it. You won't be able to make up for your own sins. There is no escape from sin's deception. And once the consequences finally and inevitably come, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is no escape. And this brings us to the final section and the final point this morning. Section 1 began by telling Babylon to sit in the dust on the ground in verse 1. Section 2 began by telling Babylon to sit in silence and go out into the darkness, verse 5. And now section 3 begins by telling Babylon to stand. Okay, stop sitting, get up. Stand up and stand fast. In verse 12. Verse 12. Stand fast, it says. Stand fast. And in this last section, verses 12 to 15, Isaiah mocks the Babylonians for their trust in their own gods, for their trust in their own religious practices, for their trust in their national allies. Babylonian religion was based on astrology and magic and sorcery, and divination. They firmly believed in the ancient world. They firmly believed that these things came from the gods and that this was the means for communicating with the gods and discerning the future and gaining the favor of heaven to give them victory in the earth over their enemies. And Isaiah castigates them for these false hopes. Verses 12 and 13 it says, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps, perhaps, he's mocking them, perhaps you may be able to succeed. Maybe it'll work this time. Give it one more try. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Maybe we'll actually be afraid of your gods this time. Give it another try. Go ahead. I'm reminded here of Elijah Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Elijah just has one altar and, and he prays and the fire falls. But before that, the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and praying and doing all their rituals and stuff. And Elijah mocks him and he says, Oh, keep shouting. Maybe they're asleep. Yeah, holler a little louder to your gods. Wake them up. And then he says, Maybe they're all, maybe they're all over there relieving themselves. <laughs> maybe they're taking a bathroom break and they just forgot it was time for the sacrifice. He absolutely mocks them. And that's what he's doing here. Give it another try. Go ahead and try again. Maybe this time the gods will answer. Of course they won't. Verse 13. You are wearied with your many counsels. 
Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, there's the astrology, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. When you reject the Lord, you must turn to the hopes and saviors that the world has to offer. But they are false saviors, and they offer only false hopes. There is no ultimate escaping sin's retribution. And just like the Babylonians trusted in the faithful, dutiful practice of their religion, we must not fall into the trap of thinking that if I just go to the right building at the right time on the right day, Sunday, church, if I just pray enough prayers and read my Bible and try to keep my nose clean and be a good person, if I just work the religion the way I'm supposed to, that will be enough. And I will not have to answer for my sins because I'm doing the right things in the right place in the way I'm told to do them. I'm working the religion. So I'm good to go. But we can't put our hope in our religious practices. Because just being a Christian, just going to church, just reading the Bible, just listening to sermons, just liking theology, just liking to talk about church history or enjoying the things of God to some extent with, with friends and family, that's not going to cut it. That's not the gospel. That's not how anybody gets saved. And if we put our hope, even in our religion, in our surface level outward religious motions, it's a false hope. That can't save. Don't just think trusting in all the other things the world has to offer. Don't trick yourself. Don't listen to sin's deception. That just going through the religious Christian motions is enough. It's not. Look finally at verses 14 and 15. It says, Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. In verse 14... God tells the Babylonians that the fire is going to fall. And I love it says, this is not going to be a little fire to sit and warm yourself by. A little bonfire. Maybe make a little, make some s'mores, roast a couple hot dogs. This is going to be a nice little fire. Oh, it's going to be a bonfire. No. No, 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 no. He says, this will not be a pleasant fire. The fire will fall. And it's not going to be like anything you could imagine. The fire of God's judgment finally will fall. And verse 15 says, No matter what you do or where you turn, apart from the Lord, sin's retribution will finally fall upon all who reject the Lord. There isn't any escape from the ultimate consequences of our sin. If we reject the Lord, we are in its clutches, under its humiliation and its deception, and eventually we will reap its consequences, the ultimate condemnation that it deserves from the wrath of a holy God. And apart from Christ, there is no escape from these things. Isaiah 47 teaches us beyond doubt that we cannot escape the consequences of sin. 
We cannot escape the humiliation. We cannot escape the deception. We cannot escape the retribution of sin. Sin will shame you. It will trick you. And eventually it will kill you. You may be like the Babylonians this morning who were enjoying the good life who felt safe and secure, who seemed so wise, who felt so invincible. But you must do what they failed to do. In the words of verse 7, it says, They did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. You, Christian, have an opportunity from the Word of God this morning to consider these things, to lay them to heart and to remember their outcome. Consider these things this morning. The Word of God is sounding a warning to those who are in the clutches of sin, those who are facing the dreadful consequences of sin. You cannot redeem yourself from sin. But verse 4 of our text holds out the one and only hope of escape from sin that's available to you. It says, Our Redeemer... The Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Because of His holiness, He will hold us accountable for sin. But because He is Redeemer, He has made a way to escape. Babylon was doomed to suffer the consequences of sin. But Israel rejoiced that they had a Redeemer. Jehovah God, the Lord of hosts. I quoted Isaiah 45, 7. Hear Isaiah 45, 16. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And therefore, verse 22 of Isaiah 45 says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Oh, flee the wrath that is to come today. Flee from the clutches of sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find Him to be your perfect Savior. He will set you free from sin. He will restore you from sin's humiliation with His dignity. He will awaken you from sin's deception and enlighten your darkened mind and heart with the light of His truth. He will rescue you from sin's retribution with His saving righteousness revealed only in the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord today. Take these things to heart Consider them and flee to your Redeemer today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a, a powerful passage like Isaiah 47. That's just heavy with its reminder of what sin is really like. And we thank you that you have revealed the true nature of sin, its humiliation and its deception and its ultimate consequences, that you've showed us these things. You've not left us out in the dark, but you've revealed these things. You've given us the light of your truth to show us what sin is really like. And oh, it is so crafty and our enemy is so subtle and so good at finding those little things about ourselves 
our past and our personality and our circumstances that trick us and lead us to believe the lie and lead us to doubt your truth. But I thank you that you've given us your holy and powerful, inspired, infallible scriptures to help us stand against all the tricks and wiles of our enemy. And I pray today that we would truly take these things to heart. And that for those, anyone here who does not know you as that perfect Savior, who has not yet ran away and flee from their sin, I pray they would do that even now as your Holy Spirit brings conviction and leads us to the foot of the cross. And for those of us who do know you, who still flirt with the things of this world and trust in all the wrong things, maybe in our religious performance or the faith of our parents or grandparents or our religious traditions and our good convictions, I pray that you would wean us off all the false hopes and that you would help us to look only to Christ, who He is and what He has done and where He stands in heaven for us even now and to show us that though sin is gruesome and that by ourselves we cannot escape, there is a deep and wide ocean of mercy available to us in Christ. Help us to take hold of the gospel today, to flee from sin and trust in Christ and to find your mercy to be sweet and satisfying to our souls. Help us, Lord. Protect us from sin. Take us from this place in joyful obedience, looking only to Christ, our Redeemer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.